0: Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our healthcare system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth. Helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our healthcare system as it exists and as it could be. For better healthcare and a better healthcare system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome
1: to Getting Better Healthcare on WebTalkRadio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the Doctorscore.com website. On our show last week, we discussed how our new drugs tested with clinical researcher Dr. B. Abrams, who has over 30 years' experience in pharmaceutical development. We have B. back this week to tell us a little bit more about the process in its nitty-gritty detail. B., it's such a pleasure to have you on the program again. Last time we talked in a broad overview of the different phases of clinical research, uh, the preclinical work, it's done in test tubes and uh, worked in, in animals. And then the phases of clinical trials in humans, the, the early phases that assess uh, dosing and in, in, in general safety, and then the, the big studies that get done to show the drug is safe and effective for the FDA, and then the continuing research that goes on. But we, we just discussed it at a very high level we didn't really discuss any of the, the detail that goes into doing these clinical trials, and I want to explore that with you today. What, what are some of the, the basic building blocks of doing a clinical trial?
2: Okay, well, let's start a little bit backwards with sort of the general reason. Why are you doing a clinical trial? And ultimately, you want a drug to be approved by a regulatory agency. And when you have the drug approved, the, the drug... Is approved at it with a certain dosing schedule in a certain dosage form. Um, it's if, if you're supposed to, for example, take uh, certain medications before meals or after meals. These kind, this kind of information all um, is in the final approval. So we have to work back from what might be what we want to see in this final approval about how our drug is used, and take that hypothetical or that wish list of how we want to see our drug presented in the label, the patient instructions, the physician instructions to use our drug, and then develop our protocols to study. In other words, the directions. It's like a recipe book on how we're going to study a drug. We develop that recipe book based on how we want to see the drug used in the final marketplace. So that one of the first steps you have um, in drug development is to make up like a, I think everybody's heard about the, the uh, drug labels, and we make up a fictitious drug label. Hmm. And then we design our clinical trials against this drug label. And we have to have in the back of our minds, you know, what is the, what is the competition doing? If our competition is dosing once a day, um, it's going to be hard for us to rationalize developing a drug where we have to dose, say, twice or three times a day.
1: That's an interesting way to look at it. So one way to look at it is we're up against competitors. The other way to look at it is we're trying to create something that's actually better for patients than what's already out there.
2: Exactly. And we want to make sure, you know, that, that what we're doing is safe and easy to use for the patient. The other thing we have to make sure is that we have our patient population well defined. We have to understand who we are going to study. Uh, I'm absolutely no expert in a lot of neuropsychologic-type uh, diseases, but I know that the very, some of those diseases are very, very difficult to define. Um, trying to define a skin disease such as psoriasis is relatively easy, but at times you have to take new drugs and say, my God, this thing may have too much of a risk to put in a mild patient. We need to reserve this for patients who have more severe disease. How do you define the patient population with the more severe disease? So um, we have to make sure that we have our patients well de- defined in the protocol. We have to have uh, very clear instructions on how the drug is to be used. Do we have? Do we use it uh, before meals, after meals? And a lot of this information, by the way, has come out of the early phase uh, clinical trials. Uh, they're called Drug Interactions and Food Interaction Studies. You've used uh, so we have to have a very clear understanding of, and when we write a very, very detailed instruction book that we give to the physicians who are going to do our clinical trials.
1: Uh, you used the word protocol a moment ago. Yes. Is that the detailed instruction manual?
2: That is the detailed instruction manual. That's, that's the way I look at it. And it also... Uh, for regulatory purposes and also because we are trying to maintain high scientific integrity in these protocols, there's a lot of things we have to do statistically in these protocols. We have to define exactly what we want to study. Um, in the late phase development, this is critical. We have to have exactly what we're going to measure. Are we going to measure, for example, in psoriasis? Are we going to measure, um, sort of an overall efficacy? Are we going to measure the numbers of patients who have a certain level of efficacy? Um, And we have to define this up front because statistically, if we make these protocols very weak and don't have clear definitions of how we're going to analyze the data and what specifically we're going to analyze, we can probably develop any kind of data we want. So we have to make sure these protocols are very scientifically sound and statistically very well uh, detailed as to how and what we are going to analyze. And again, we have to know exactly who the patients are because the patients we study in our protocols are the patients who are going to be in the label as approved to use our drug. So if we, you know, if we define too small a patient population, then that's going to limit what we get when we get approval. If it's too large, we might have such variability that our drug efficacy is lost. So it's a very critical um, piece of design, who you're going to study, how you're going to put the drug into them, and then statistically, what data do you want to collect, what is going to be your primary uh, focus, what are going to be secondary um, issues that you want to look at.
1: When I'm talking to my students about, uh, say, a drug for acne, and it's approved for you know, children ages 12 to 18 with mild to moderate acne who failed, you know, other treatments, you know, I asked them, I'll often ask the students, well, why is it approved only for people who are 12 to 18 and not for people who are 19, 20 or 10 or 11? And the the students may scratch their head and go, why? And I say, well, because that's what they included in the study. That's what was in the study protocol. That's Uh,
2: right.
1: why, Why is it approved for mild to moderate acne and not more severe acne? It's like, well, those were the patients who were included in the studies, and that's what you were told to do in the protocol. And and so the the protocol ends up defining how we use the drug, or at least how it's approved for use in clinical practice.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And so the the protocol, as I mentioned, has to be scientifically sound. It has to meet all the rigid standards of ethics, because here's where we're defining you know, the, pa- the patient is meeting this new drug entity. So we really have to make sure that whatever we're doing is in the patient's best interest. Um, you know, you, for example, you might want to take some diseases that have a lot of complicating factors. And, you know, to be a real a purist, you say, oh, my God, I'm going to give them only my drug. you can't take any concomitant medications because that will just complicate what we see. But is that ethical? So these types of de- debates, how do you balance ethics and science. Those are very, very difficult things, and they are issues that go into the design of any clinical trial. And again, ethics is absolutely a critical point in the development of any protocol.
1: Let's give our listeners a a visual picture of what a protocol would look like. I imagine it's going to look like a book, and it's going to have a title on the cover.
2: Exactly. And the title is usually extremely long (laughs) and very descriptive of what is being studied for example if it's going to be studied in a lot of different study centers that's called a multi-center trial so it'll be it'll, the first thing i'll say for example is a multi-center clinical trial and because the patients are randomly put into treatment in, in other words they don't you don't a patient doesn't come in and say, "Oh, I want treatment A." And another patient comes in and says, I'll "I want treatment placebo. B." Yeah. Or a patient comes into the doctor and he says, "Oh, you look like a, uh, I want to make sure you get treatment A." And another patient comes in and the doctor says, "I want you to have treatment B." That would absolutely bias the results. So the patients are randomly put into the trial, and um, so the next and by, word by, is usually by "randomly trial put in." Title is randomized. I,
1: yeah. So by randomly, you don't mean. The, uh, whether they go into the study or not is random. What we're talking about is if we're comparing the drug to the placebo, whether the patient is given the drug or the placebo is done on a random basis.
2: Exactly. And these are statistically um, developed programs to randomize the patient's so it's not like you know, first patient gets A, second B, third gets A, fourth gets B. No, these are absolute. These are designed by statisticians so that they are really randomly allocated to the patients are randomly allocated uh, in a statistically valid method to the different treatment groups. So, so that would be the next thing. And then, what's your control? Is it an active control or is it a placebo? So. The title will go on and on. For example, a multicenter randomized placebo controlled trial in mild to moderate patients with acne, vulgaris, uh, you know. Now, another thing too is ages. Um, the clinical programs have to address um, all of the target patients uh, as far as ages. Um, But very often you may want to start looking at your adult population first for safety reasons and ethical reasons because adults are more able to handle drugs and then move it into younger patients um, because they're developing and a drug might have an effect on the development of a younger patient. So again, you would probably have specified somewhere in the title, you know, in patients 18 to 65
1: treated with drug XYZ. So we have a ran, a multi center randomized placebo controlled trial. And uh, then
2: you might talk about how it's blinded. Does blinding is the procedure where you mask the ability mm-hmm. for the patient and the treating physician and anybody who has anything to do with the study from knowing what an individual patient has been treated with because, again, you could fudge the data if you knew.
1: Yeah, so uh, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized study of drug XYZ in dose whatever in patients with mild to moderate whatever condition of ages. Yeah, you know, patients <laughs> 18
2: to 65. Yeah. yeah. So it, try- it just goes
1: it- on and on. Okay, yep. and so you open, the, you open the cover, and then you'll get to a, a, an executive summary that sort of describes – an overview of the of the study.
2: Yep, there's usually the executive summary. There's an introduction that will give some basis for why you are studying the drug. What is the rationale for, um, you know, putting this drug into a patient? You've got to be able to justify that you're expecting an effect of the drug. So, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't take aspirin and treat a psoriasis patient with it and expect because of its mechanism of action to see a psoriatic plaque uh, disappear. So you would want, if you took a drug, for example, that that um, inhibited um, an, a specific interleukin that's involved, a specific mediator that's involved with psoriasis, and you'd put that, that reason, this is the reason we're looking at it in a psoriatic patient, because we know that it can affect this mediator that we know is involved in psoriasis. So there's a little background information about why we are doing this.
1: Um, yeah. So let's go back to that executive summary. Um, there's the title. Um, th- th- there's a little information about the study population, what disease they have, what age they have, sort of some rules for whether they can be included or excluded from the study, um, what's being measured, I guess how often and when you measure it. Exactly. How the statistical analyses are going to be done, how you're going to measure adverse events. Um, okay. And And so then you get into the meat of the protocol book, which will start with an introduction about the disease and the drug?
2: The disease and the drug. And as I said, that's all, that's all the introduction stuff. But but the real meat of the protocol is then presented in detail, and this would include, for example, the inclusion-exclusion patient uh, uh, criteria. criteria yeah. excuse me. Um, for example, and this is critical because whatever patients you include in your study are the patients who are going to be included if the drug is approved. Um, Those are the patients that you're going to be able to sell the drug to. Anything you exclude is going to be excluded. So if you, for example, said all psoriatic patients who have high blood pressure are excluded from this trial, you'd wind up with very few psoriatic patients um, in your final
1: approved drug label. Or if they said, okay, if you have tuberculosis, you can't be in. If you have HIV infection, you can't be in. Then the label is going to say, if you have HIV infection or tuberculosis, you're not a candidate for this drug.
2: Absolutely. So, right. the inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria are, are critical because you need to balance, find the right balance of ethics for the patients. You want to define a patient population that you really think will be safely and effectively treated with this drug. Uh, and you don't want to exclude pa- too many patients because then it won't uh, fit you'll wind up limiting the patients that uh, you have information on and that you can get approval for.
1: And then the the next level of nitty-gritty detail in the protocol would be what?
2: Um, I guess uh, there's whole sections on dosing. How are you going to dose the drug? And this is not as simple as it sounds. Again, I mean, you don't just say you take the drug twice a day. Uh, Because, again, you have to specify, do you take it twice a day? Can Can you take it with food? Can you take it with other drugs? So there's a whole section on how you would dose the drug.
1: And Um, then I guess for when return visits will occur to measure the effects of the drug?
2: Exactly. It talks about the return visits and how often things will be measured. And then the next major section would be what are you going to measure. And, again, you have to identify. There may be a whole list of things that you're going to look at you have to identify one thing usually that is called the primary variable and this is really going to be the basis of whether or not the drug works and um everything else you're looking at is secondary it's nice but the real you have to identify one criteria that you're going to say makes or breaks this drug as far as efficacy
1: you're listening to Getting Better healthcare on webtalkradio.net. We're talking with Dr. B. Abrams about the nitty-gritty of doing clinical trials. So there's a primary endpoint, uh, a primary outcome that you're going to measure, and you're going to see if, if this measure um, shows a difference between the drug and the placebo, something the FDA will say, sure enough, this drug does what it's supposed to do.
2: Absolutely, that's that's the critical thing. Then everything else you're measuring, should it, it's like building a pyramid. You have this primary variable, primary endpoint, on top of the pyramid with the lights coming out of it and, and big stars and everything. But it all should be supported by everything else you're measuring in that in the efficacy trial.
1: So let's say you're taking care of patients with acne and you've got some new drug for them, and you're wondering. Does this, does this drug work or not? So you're, you want a, 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 an endpoint that, that patients will find relevant. So maybe you've chosen whether they're clear or almost clear their acne as a, as a measure of success. So presumably everybody has to achieve clear or almost clear success for the FDA to approve the drug?
2: Yes, compared to, compared to placebo. And, of course, how do you define clear or almost clear? And then okay, can, wait, wait. Just, so let's uh, not get into those discussions.
1: No, also, I, I just want to make sure I get this right because I don't think I, I, was, I sort of set myself up to be uh, argued with. about it. Not everybody has to have success in the drug group. For the FDA to say, oh, this drug is approved?
2: I'm sorry, maybe I misunderstood you. What the criteria is, uh, what you have to have is the numbers of patients, for example, who are clear versus the numbers of patients who are not clear in the active has to be statistically significantly better than the numbers of patients clear versus not clear in the... um, placebo group.
1: So uh, well, I, I don't want to have a whole show on statistics, but this sounds like a really critically important point. So the drug doesn't have to work for everybody. It doesn't have to get everybody clear or almost clear. Just more people have to be clear, almost clear with the drug than with the placebo, statistically more.
2: That's correct. Yeah. And I mean, you have to, no drug is going to work in everybody. And most drugs also will have very vari- a variable amount of efficacy in different people. So all of this has to be, uh, you, it, all of this goes into the statistical design of the trial, trying to understand absolutes, you know, it works or it doesn't work versus how much is it
1: working. Yeah. Um, so it, in, the, in the case of some uh, fictitious drug, let's say we had a drug that where it worked for 10% of the people and uh, none of the people in the placebo group uh, got any benefit? So this difference ten percent is statistically more than placebo. The FDA might approve that drug.
2: Well, again, it would also depend depend on on the safety. This is where the balance. Uh, you always have to look at a drug in the context of how much efficacy am I getting for the amount of um, safety. For example, Raptiva certainly was working, and just for four patients, they pulled it. You know, they pulled it off the market. It's the balance of is are they getting a certain amount of efficacy? And those ten percent patients, if they if there was nothing else on the market that could treat them, and these ten percent patients, when you say that they responded, they did show a very good response. You've defined the response to meet a very high bar. Then a 10% difference would be important in that patient population. You're talking about acne, and you're talking about 10%, depending on the criteria. I mean, when you talk about acne patients, absolutely clear, that's almost impossible to achieve. That's awesome. So so if you get 10% of patients with absolutely clear, and you can show that's really statistically significant compared to the placebo, you may have an argument there, well, and then all your secondary variables back it up.
1: So it sounds like just because a drug is approved, that doesn't answer all our questions. There's still a lot of interpretation of the data that doctors and patients need to keep in mind when they're um, deciding on, on what treatments to use.
2: I had a friend once who talked about, he was a clinician um, who had then become gone into clinical research, and he used to say when he practiced, he used study populations with one patient. The patient walked in, you gave him a drug, did it work or didn't work? As I mentioned, no drug works the same in all people. What we have to do in clinical research is to try and predict what is going to happen in a population. We're not looking at a single patient. We're looking at populations and trying to say, this is what we're giving you to treat Certain given population, disease population, age, whatever, uh, we're giving you this drug. And this is what your expectation should be uh, overall. When you get an individual patient, you're going to see he's going to fit somewhere in the spectrum. Um, and it's one of the newer trends now in uh, drug development is pharmacogenomics. Looking for markers that might predict what a patient is going to, how a patient is going to respond, either safety. Or- now
1: that is a topic for yet an, another entire program. So let's go back. You've got this protocol; it's got all of this detail. You're sending it to doctors all over the country who are enrolling patients as subjects into these clinical trials. How do you keep track of all the information? How do you know that these um, doctors or other investigators who are enrolling patients? are tracking what they're supposed to be tracking or are, are, are collecting the data that are supposed to be collected?
2: This is a huge enterprise. We actually have, would have people go out to the individual physician's offices and monitor. They go through the, the case report. The, well, we have what, what do you step, call
1: these people, study monitors?
2: Study monitors, yeah. <laughs> uh, we have to go back one step here. Uh, all the information that we ask for in the protocol the physician has to put down in either electronically on a computer or some of the old stuff is done still on paper but most it's gets going electronic now but they have to answer specific questions about how the patient is responding and these are questions and measures that are are defined in the protocol this is called the case report form where the answers are put. So these study monitors go in, they look to make sure the drug is stored appropriately. If the drug is supposed to be stored in a refrigerator, it has to be in a secure refrigerator where nobody's going to get into it. Uh, nobody's going to put food in that refrigerator. And it is specifically for the drug. And you've got to um, record
1: the temperature on the refrigerator probably at some intervals.
2: Absolutely. They look at um, is the patient being. A patient before he can come into any trial has to be given uh, what they call informed consent. So the patient has to be told what the drug does, why he's, why we think the drug would be interesting uh, to be studied in in patients like him, what we think it might do, what we might, what side effects we might predict given all our early work, um, and he has to be able to give an informed. To make an informed decision about whether or not he wants to participate in the trial. And these trials are absolutely voluntary. There can be no coercion whatsoever um, so, to bring patients in. So the monitor will check to make sure that the physician is ethically recruiting his patients. And then they go through the case report form to make sure that the physician is accurately recording information.
1: So the doctor, probably with the help of their study staff, uh, enrolls patients, gives them the informed consent documents to read, and then it puts a cop. They, they sign off on that, it's a copy of it, to put in the records. For each visit, visit week one, week two, whatever it is, there's probably a form that needs to be filled out with all kinds of data being collected. Those forms uh, get checked off by the study monitor at intervals to make sure everything's being collected and filling out more paperwork on anything that was missed. Along the way, tracking the drug it 's quite an endeavor as you say
2: oh it, and and if you multiply this by um, multiple you know there could be a hundred study centers involved in one trial, and these centers could be all over the world. We have to have staff to collect this information um, and you know if a disease for example when when we were do when you look at certain um, Diseases like tinea capitis. Uh, Uh, That's
1: a fungal infection of the scalp.
2: Exactly. The organism that causes the disease varies by geography. Oh, great. (laughs) And the FDA wanted us specifically, for example, to have patients with the disease caused by the microorganism, Microsporum canis. That is primarily, that is not the major cause of the disease in the United States. We had to go into all over the world to find these patients and to get enough of them to meet our statistical requirements to be able to show a difference between placebo and active. So you really have to be able to do large trials, manage large patient populations, and be able to get these monitors out all over the world and get people organized so that they can do the trial all over the world. It's an incredible undertaking and then all this information that you're collecting and all this monitored information has to be easily accessible because if a regulatory agency comes back and wants proof that the physician at a certain center was correctly conducting his trial we have to be able to have what we call paper trail we have to be able to show that everything was done as it's specified in the protocol, according to the regulations of that country in the United States, also of the state that the physician is practicing in. Um, so it' there's so much paperwork. It's just unbelievable.
1: Uh, v, I think you've given us a, a fabulous, uh, detailed look at what happens in these clinical trials. Um, any any final questions? Um, Words for our listeners about um, clinical trials. Anything else that happens, or anything they should know about clinical research? Uh,
2: clinical research is an absolutely fascinating area, and as I mentioned, it—I was always really interested because it's an area where science meets the real world, where science meets ethics, where science meets marketing interests, uh, capitalism, if you will.
1: Um, where science makes a a difference in people's lives
2: and where science makes a, can make a real difference in people's lives so i i just i think it's an excellent area if people are interested I, my understanding reading all you know the, the economic stuff is that healthcare industry is still a good place to go and that there's a lot of different types of people that are needed in drug development everywhere from lawyers to pharmacists um Chemists, physicists, molecular modelers, statisticians, uh, physicians, nurses—it's uh, an incredibly, um, you know, it's just, its an incredibly complex uh, endeavor. And the fact that we're getting some drugs to me a mark that shows that there's something good happening.
1: Well, thank you so much for educating us.
2: It was my pleasure. It's, as I said, it's something I, I truly love
1: there's obviously a tremendous amount of effort that goes into clinical drug development, tremendous amount of resources, of detail. This is one of the reasons why I'm always amazed at people who would prefer to take some relatively untested natural remedy over a clinically proven product like one of the drugs that has made it past FDA approval. Now, we know that even FDA approval isn't perfect for all the effort that goes into drug development for all the hundreds, if not thousands of people who are being tested with a drug. They can't detect every rare event, something that happens only once in every few thousand people may be undetected in a clinical drug program, at least as far as the point of FDA approval. So we have to keep that in mind. But that said, the drugs that have been tested give us a tremendous, tremendous degree of confidence in what they do, in their efficacy and their safety, um, as evidenced by all the the, the work that B has described goes into getting a drug approved. Well, you may feel like you've heard everything you want to know about drug development. We're going to have one more show on this next week where we talk about the myths of. Of, of clinical drug development with Dr. Lawrence Friedhoff. Dr. Friedhoff led the team that got worldwide approval for Aricept, the main drug used to treat Alzheimer's disease. And he's gotten a number of other drugs approved too. He's the author of New Drugs, an insider's guide to the FDA's new drug approval process for scientists, investors, and patients. Should be a fascinating program. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until next time, I wish you the very best of health.
0: Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to health care empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.